We'll hear argument next in number 94.3, the Reynoldsville Casket Company versus Carol Hyde. Mr. Riedel. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The general question that was before the Ohio Supreme Court was, should a decision that establishes a new rule of law apply to events that occurred before the date of the decision? The specific issue before the Ohio Court was, should the decision of this Court in Bendix versus Midwesco in June of 1988, wherein Ohio's tolling statute, 2305.15, was declared to be unconstitutional as being in violation of the Commerce Clause, apply to time bar the respondent's lawsuit of August of 1987 for bodily injury arising out of a motor vehicle accident that took place between the parties in March of 1984. And at all times, before and after this accident, Ohio had, continues to have, a two-year statute of limitations for the filing of personal injury actions. The accident took place where? In Ashtabula County in Ohio? It did, Your Honor. And the, the parties were Pennsylvanians? Everybody. The petitioners, the corporation, and its driver were residents of Pennsylvania. The respondent, likewise, was a, a resident of Pennsylvania. Although the Ohio Trial Court and the Court of Appeals both answered the specific issue in the affirmative, in other words, Bendix applies retroactively to the parties and the respondent's lawsuit was time barred. When the question was presented to the Ohio Supreme Court, it reversed the decisions of the lower court and stated that Bendix should not be retroactively applied to the parties in this case. It was not a unanimous decision. It was 5-2. The rationale of the Ohio Supreme Court, the majority, for denying retroactive, the retroactive application of Bendix was essentially twofold, and it appeared in Parts 1 and Part 2 of the majority's opinion. In Part 2 of the majority's opinion, the Court placed its reasoning on this Court's decision in Harper v. Virginia, and that is clear because the majority stated, even if the Chevron test has been replaced by Harper, the retroactive application of Bendix remains impermissible. Well, how do you overcome Harper, Mr. Riedel? I overcome Harper by virtue of the, the constitutional issue. The violation in Harper was one, um, was, was a real violation. There is no constitutional. Well, you think 
there was no constitutional violation here or, or in Bendix, the statute was not unconstitutional? In Bendix, the statute was unconstitutional. It is the very statute, is it not? It is, but not in this case. The, the Excuse me? I, I mean, the holding in Bendix yes. was that the statute that we're talking about uh, was, unconstitutional. was unconstitutional. Exactly. The, so, uh, the Supreme Court of Ohio recognized the unconstitutionality of that statute in this case. The respondent has conceded to the unconstitutional of, of that statute in this case, in, in, in that sense. Uh, the position I thought Harper had indicated that of uh, Backward-looking relief is required. Backward-looking relief for underlying constitutional violation. I don't believe that there was an underlying constitutional violation in this case. The majority went on to state that Harper allows state courts to tailor their own remedies as they determine Excuse me, I'm, I'm really getting confused here. You're not running away from Harper. You like Harper, don't I you? I do. Yeah. Yes. Uh, what I'm trying to do, Your Honor, is, is Justice Scalia, is, is, is distinguish why this majority opinion is wrong. In uh, that connection, it's my understanding that the only thing that counts in Ohio is the syllabus, that everything else is like a law review article. Is that not so? Yes. So that we should look at just this one sentence. But the, the syllabus says, uh, Supreme Court decision may not be retroactively applied to bar claims which accrued prior to the announcement of that decision. Right. That's the holding of the court, and that's all that counts. That, that is true, uh, Justice Ginsburg. And what, what the majority went on to state was that Harper, their reading of Harper, allowed state courts to tailor their own remedies. Uh, as they determine the manner in which a United States Supreme Court opinion was to be retroactively applied. And what, they, what the majority's manner of tailoring in this case was, was to employ a provision of the Ohio Constitution, Article 1, Section 16, um, and state that that prohibited the application of Bendix to the parties in this case. And specifically with regard to Article 1 and Section 16, the majority stated, we find that when there is a conflict between a state constitutional civil right, Article 1, Section 16, and a federal rule of decision, the Bendix case, that is not rooted in the Constitution, such as retroactivity, the civil right prevails. The rationale of the majority in Part 2 of its decision um, in denying full retroactivity to the parties in this case is wrong. Uh, and that's been, I believe, so conceded by the respondent in this case. They suppose, suppose Chevron oil, where there was still some vitality left to it. In, in that case, shouldn't we uphold the Ohio decision? No. And I, I, I would like to talk about that a little later, Justice Ginsburg, as to why, if Chevron is in fact applied, that even if it is applied, it, it would not achieve the result that the majority found in this case. The respondent has conceded with the petitioners, we agree that the clear command of the supremacy clause of the Constitution displaces all conflicting state law. 
what is left, therefore, in this case to support the denial of full retroactivity of the Bendix decision is the logic of Part 1 of the majority's opinion. And whereas in Part 2 was premised upon the majority's reading of Harper, in Part 1, the Court denied retroactivity by resort to a Chevron analysis. And, and again, that's clear because the Court said, if Chevron remains good law, then Chevron, not Harper, provides the proper test to apply to the present case. And without quite saying so, I would submit that the majority had its doubts regarding the continued viability of a Chevron analysis. Uh, that's evidenced by statements in the majority's opinion that it is unclear whether Harper was intended to replace Chevron or supplement it. If Chevron remains good law, even if Chevron has been replaced by Harper, whether or not Chevron remains good law, Despite what I believe were, were legitimate reservations about Chevron, the Court nevertheless went ahead and did a Chevron analysis. And although the majority did not so state, uh, I would submit that its resort to Chevron was solely in the context of a choice of law analysis. In other words, the new law or the old law. The issue of remedy uh, the second prong of the Court's opinion uh, was discussed in Part 2. In other words, when the Court went on to say, Harper allows state courts to tailor their own remedies. Part 1 of the opinion, its Chevron inquiry, the term remedy was never mentioned by the majority. It never used the term because I would submit that the Court viewed Chevron as a vehicle for determining choice of law. Again, old law resort to the continued use of the tolling statute or new law, Bendix 2305-15 is unconstitutional. Mr. Riedel, is there any choice of remedies in this case or, or is the choice simply between a remedy and no remedy? In this case, uh, there is no, in my opinion, uh, Justice Souter, there, there is no uh, issue as to remedies. I believe it is a matter of application of the old law or the new law. Just but as what, we... What, is, is, it, is it clear that we have old law and, and new law here? I, I thought that perhaps one reading appendix, at least, is that it relied on established legal principles. So it's not a change of law. There's not new law and old law, and that that is a way to distinguish Chevron. Well, in, in terms of, of courts that, that must follow this court's decision, this court's decision, this court in 1988 said that, in, in Bendix, that that statute was unconstitutional. Under settled legal principles. Correct. And between 1988 and when the Ohio Supreme Court decided this case in February of 1994, those principles had not changed. So you and, could and just that is my point, and I think that uh, isn't that a distinction between this case and Chevron? I, I, I don't. I, no, I don't, sir. I don't think that is a distinction. Couldn't you just as readily then answer my question by saying the choice is between applying Bendix and not applying Bendix? Those are the only two choices. Yes. Okay. Yes. But haven't 
under under the Chevron type approach, haven't we said if the rule is clearly foreshadowed, it's not a new rule? I mean, that is certainly an argument that could be made here, even if Chevron remained. That is true. And even if the Court — I don't believe that the Ohio Court looked at Chevron in a remedial sense, as you are talking about, but rather a choice of law. Well, but can it, we talk sure, about it? Sure. Sure. Even if you did it in a remedial sense, what occurred in terms of, I think, a time frame in this case is significant to look at. This accident between the parties occurred in March of 1984. Three days later, March 8th of 1984, the District Court for the Northern District of Ohio in Copley v. Heil Quaker ruled this particular statute as being unconstitutional. June of 1987, the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Bendix v. Midwesco, in a unanimous opinion, this statute is unconstitutional. The Respondent's lawsuit was still not filed. Respondent did not file this lawsuit until over two months later, August of 1987. And so that when the lawsuit was filed, the doubt about the validity of this statute was
This Court decided Bendix in June of 1988. This accident occurred in March of 84. The lower uh, court, the district court, um, declaring uh, the tolling statute in Ohio unconstitutional occurred three days after this accident. The uh, Sixth Circuit declared the same statute unconstitutional um, approximately two months before this lawsuit was filed. This and it was, would have already been too late. Yes, ma'am. Yes. So the only notice was the district court, the only hint was the district court decision. The district court and the, the Sixth Circuit. Uh, the Sixth Circuit, you said, came no. when it would have already been too late under the two-year limit. You said yes. the district yes. court decision was yes. three days after the act. Correct. Yes. But the, by the time the Sixth Circuit decided, more than two years had elapsed since the accident. That's correct. And so uh, to, to address what you uh, had asked me earlier about, if Chevron, uh, the Chevron test were applied to this case, uh, which the majority attempted to do, or at least they said they were going to do, in part one of the opinion, um, clearly that they, didn't, they didn't even address the first issue in Chevron, the, the clear precedent or the foreshadowing argument, because what the Ohio majority said was Bendix was the first time that any court of binding authority in Ohio state courts had ruled the tolling statute unconstitutional. That's not, that's not the test from Chevron. The test from Chevron, at least the threshold, the first test, is clear past precedent or no clear foreshadowing. And I would submit there was uh, a lack of clear past precedent. The district court, the Sixth Circuit decision, and, and clearly foreshadowing this court's decision in June of 1988. The second factors and the third factor from Chevron. Well, I'm not following because June of 1988 was much too late. Yes. The foreshadowing would have to have been while plaintiffs still could have acted on time. So the only thing that could have been, that could count, the only decision is the district court decision. Now, if, if the respondent wanted to rely upon the tolling statute, and not the statute of limitations. Had there been a Delaware case uh, that had struck down a statute similar to this? The, I believe it was in the, the New Jersey. Or it was in New Jersey. Yes. And, and what was the date of that case? That was, um, I believe, 83 in that area. And I believe that was, uh, uh, or, or I don't think it struck it down at that point, but it had addressed. It addressed the issue of a similar a uh, tolling statute in New Jersey under uh, the Commerce Clause um, parameters. Well, that, that was our case of Searle against Cohn. Yes. And we, we didn't, we simply pretermitted that question when we gave our decision, do we not? Yes. Yes. Uh, the, the second and the third test, the Chevron test, um, the majority never even addressed those tests in this particular case. There was not one word said uh, as to an analysis of two and three from Chevron. What the court did say was that it didn't have to do that because the, the facts of the two cases were, were so similar. And I, I would submit 
that they're not similar facts and that they're quite different, Chevron and this case. And what is also uniquely different about the two cases was the manner in which the constitutional challenge was raised. In Chevron, the issue was not raised until after this Court decided Rodriguez versus Aetna. In this case — Would you refresh my recollection about Chevron? Was that a constitutional case? Chevron uh, had to do with which statute of limitations uh, were going to apply to a Louisiana — And was there any constitutional issue in it? I didn't remember one. That's why I was — I don't think so, sir. The, the, again, going back to the distinction between uh, Chevron and this case, um, Chevron, the, the issue was not raised until after this Court decided Rodriguez versus Aetna. In this case, uh, at the very first moment, the petitioners raised the unconstitutionality argument of 2305.15 and the right to rely upon Ohio's two-year uh, statute of limitations. There was no delay whatsoever on the part of the petitioners in this case. Petitioners did not rely upon anybody raise the, the initial arguments that were ultimately ruled upon by this Court in, in Bendix in June of 1988. Whether, uh, whether a finding that a decision is truly uh, applies retroactively has any practical effect, I believe, depends upon the remedial implications of that finding. If equitable considerations are ignored or are to be ignored in assessing the retroactive impact of a decision, as, as I read the Beam decision, Chevron does not apply to choice of law. We can discard that. But courts are permitted to shape the remedial calculus then declaring a decision retroactive might be of little consequence. Uh, other courts will follow the lead of the Ohio court. Yes, it's retroactive, but, but state courts, we have the right to tailor our own remedies as we determine the manner in which a decision of the United States Supreme Court is to be applied retroactively. That's exactly what the majority did in this case. Their resort to the latter inquiry resulted in conferring constitutional status on an unconstitutional statute. I, I think there are two points clear from this Court's decisions in Beam and Harper. All of this Court's rulings apply retroactively unless the Court expressly reserves judgment on the issue. Well, we don't have to even assume that here because I take it the, the choice of law issue is subject to stipulation. Correct. Okay. It is. It has been stipulated. And, and second, once a decision is applied retroactively to one set of parties, it must be applied retroactively to all similarly situated litigants. Because 2305.15, the tolling statute, was declared to be unconstitutional by this Court in Bendix in June of 1988, thus permitting Midwesco Industries to avail itself of Ohio's statute of limitations. That same logic should apply to the parties in this case. Anything to the contrary is disparate treatment between similarly situated litigants. Uh, 
I would respectfully request that the decision of the Ohio Supreme Court be reversed and this Court reinstate the decision of the lower courts. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Riedel. Mr. Dyke. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, uh, we, of course, do not uh, take issue with the Harper decision on the choice of law issue, uh, and I should make clear that in the oral argument before the Ohio Supreme Court, which came after the Harper decision, Mr. Erdley and Mr. Zollard did not argue uh, that, uh, the, that the Ohio Supreme Court had any discretion with respect to the choice of law aspect of Harper. We agreed then, we agree now, that uh, the Ohio Supreme Court had no choice with respect to the choice of law issue and that the first part of its decision suggesting otherwise is wrong. That's the part that relied on the Ohio Constitution? No, Your Honor. The second part of the uh, Ohio Supreme Court decision relied on Section 1, Article, uh, Article 1, Section 16 of the Ohio Constitution, the right to the remedy provision. And that second part of the Ohio Supreme Court's decision holds that the right to a remedy provision told the two-year statute of limitations. And uh, I recognize that, uh, unfortunately, the Ohio Supreme Court misperceived its role even in the second part of the opinion, because what they suggested there was that the Ohio Constitution trumps uh, this Court's choice of law rules, e- even if they apply to remedies. But I think what the Ohio Supreme Court really meant to say, or at least should have said, was that the uh, uh, remedial uh, provisions in the Ohio Constitution were consistent with federal law, were consistent with the Harper case. And we believe that they were, in fact, consistent with the Harper case. Uh, Harper, of course, did not preclude uh, states from applying their remedial schemes to the vindication of federal rights. A majority of this court in American Trucking and Beam and in Harper, individual justices have recognized uh, that the issue of remedial discretion uh, is an important one. Well, and Mr. Dyke, may I interrupt you there? The, the word remedial gets used throughout this case, but as I understand it, the only issue in this case is whether at some point in the future, or at the present time for that matter, the saving statute is going to be applied or whether it isn't. There's nothing to remedy from the past. The state hasn't been acting unconstitutionally. It hasn't been collecting taxes that it shouldn't have collected, and so on. The only question in this case uh, is whether the saving statute is going to be applied or whether it isn't going to be applied. I don't understand that to be the issue then, at all, Justice Then correct Sir. me on that. Uh, the, the, the saving statute, uh, uh, 230515, is unconstitutional. It is gone. There is no question about that. The so it's not going to be applied? You it's not going to be applied. Okay. That is not. What's, what's left? What is left is uh, the general principle applied by the Ohio Supreme Court and reflected in the state constitutional provision, which provides for tolling of uh, the two-year statute of limitations because of surprise to this plaintiff and other people similarly situated. In other words, it is quite a different but rule the, of law. Isn't, isn't the, the effect of the tolling, in effect, the, the, to, to come up with a rule which is identical to the saving statute, so that if you say, well, we will allow tolling as a result of surprise, we are, in fact, to that extent, applying a kind of savings clause uh, which would have been within the savings clause that everyone agrees is unconstitutional. And the analysis has turned into kind of a legal shell game. 
uh, we say, oh, well, the savings clause as written doesn't apply, but we've got something else just as good, which has precisely the same effect. Well, Justice Souter, I do not think uh, it has precisely the same effect with respect to all future cases and all people who are on notice of the Bendix decision, their claims will be precluded unless they are brought within the two-year statutory period. But in this case, it will, in fact, have the same effect. It it has the same result, but but the reasoning is entirely different. The reasoning is not that foreign corporations should be subjected uh, to suit indefinitely. That is not the ground for the State Supreme Court decision here. The ground for the State Supreme Court decision is that people who are surprised should have the benefit of tolling of the statute of limitations. And as the Eli Lilly case and the Hardy — put it another way, foreign, foreign corporations should be subjected to suit indefinitely, brought by people who were relying on their ability to sue foreign corporations indefinitely. That, I mean, it's just slicing out a small category of the, of the, of the unconstitutional statute, but it's still — essentially applying the same statute. No, no, Justice Scalia, it is not applying the same statute. It is applying Article 1, uh, Section 16 of the Ohio Constitution, which has been applied routinely in other cases to uh, save uh, causes of action where people were not on notice that they should have brought the case. This but, but here its effect is to preserve an unconstitutional statute for the benefit of those who are relying on the unconstitutional statute. That is what it does. That is true, but we think that there is nothing unusual about that. This Court, in the area of federal law, in in, uh, habeas corpus, in qualified immunity, uh, with respect to statutes of limitations under Chevron, with respect to Title VII, has has recognized the appropriateness of protecting these reliance interests. And if... On the question of reliance interest, this case seems to me different from the Chevron oil. Was there any reason why this plaintiff could not have sued either in Pennsylvania or in Ohio within the two-year limitation? Uh, l- let me see if I can explain, uh, Justice Ginsburg, the situation. The, the accident took place in Ashtabula, which is very close to the Pennsylvania border. The plaintiff retained uh, shortly after the accident an Ohio lawyer who states that he relied on the tolling provision, which was invalidated in Bendix, in not bringing suit. And now one of the reasons for suing in Ohio rather than Pennsylvania would be, for example, that the witnesses, uh, the trial witnesses, uh, would not be subject uh, potentially to subpoena uh, in Pennsylvania, such as the state police officer or the Yes, but as far as suing in Ohio, the long arm had been long on the books. There was no impediment to suit in Ohio. The tolling for an out-of-state def- defendant had long ago become anachronistic, hadn't it? Well, I don't think it had become anachronistic. There was, in fact, no decision in the Ohio state system, and we are talking about the Ohio state system, suggesting that that tolling provision was in any what way... What was the reason, Mr. Dyke, for the tolling provision originally? Why were statutes of limitations tolled against out-of-staters? I think the reasons are articulated in, in this Court's decision in Searle and Bendix that it is sometimes difficult to use long-arm statutes, and it is easier for, for people to, to use the tolling provision and rely on that. And that's Didn't what happened here. Didn't the tolling here. provisions come in in a day when there were no long-arms? Yes, they did. The derivation? Yes, they did, but they were interpreted to continue to have validity after the long-arm statutes came in. And if a lawyer is sitting in his office in Ashtabula and trying to figure out when he's supposed to bring suit, he looks at the uh, 
uh, statutory provisions, and he says, I have uh, uh, an indefinite period of time to bring suit because I'm dealing with an out-of-state corporation. And then he goes to research the law. What does he find? What he finds is a New Jersey decision in mid-1983 saying that the New Jersey statute is unconstitutional. But the New Jersey statute is very different from the Ohio statute. But you could not take into account the enormous difference between a world without long arms where you had to put your hands on the defendant in the state and the time when it was just a matter of sending notice by mail. Justice Ginsburg, the statute may not have been desirable policy. The statute may have not been necessary anymore, but the statute was there on the books and people relied on it. And they are, we think, entitled to rely on tolling provisions that are on the, on the books that have never been questioned in the Ohio courts and that well, have been routinely the, applied. How about the district court decision? There were, there were three district court decisions. Judge Potter uh, had decided that the statute was unconstitutional. Uh, in, in two companion cases, one of which came up to this court as Bendix. Judge Rubin and Judge Brown had reached opposite results. They held the statute constitutional. Now, neither, none of these three decisions was reported or accessible to ordinary lawyers. We're talking ten years ago before Lexis and Westlaw. So they weren't in FedSup. They weren't in, none of the three was in, in federal supplement. Uh, uh, but but there, there was a conflict there in the district courts. There was no Sixth Circuit authority on this, and there certainly was no authority in the Ohio court system suggesting in any way, shape, or form that this statute was invalid. And under this Court's decisions uh, applying Chevron, we understand uh, that you are entitled to look to the decisions within the forum, within the jurisdiction. And anyone doing that would not have found reason to believe that this statute was unconstitutional. And as I started to suggest earlier, uh, while this Court's decision in Searle uh, might have raised a question about the New Jersey statute, the New Jersey statute was very different from the Ohio statute. The New Jersey statute required that you become licensed to do business in the state as a way of uh, uh, getting the statute of limitations to run. The Ohio statute had no such requirement in it. It merely required uh, the appointment of an agent for service of process. Now, the difference between the two is significant, because under the New Jersey statute, when you registered, you became liable to taxation in the state. The Ohio statute imposed no such requirement. And this Court in Searle suggested strongly at the end of its opinion that, that there was a critical difference between a statute like the New Jersey statute and a statute like the Ohio statute. So it wasn't, it wasn't so clear that even if this New Jersey decision were correct, that it would apply in Ohio. Now, the only other published decision that came along was the decision of the Sixth Circuit in Bendix, which came along about two months before this plaintiff filed suit. Uh, again, it's not a decision of the Ohio system. It was on review in this court. But e even if uh, uh, she were bound to look at that, uh, if she'd looked at it, we certainly think that filing suit approximately two months later was filing within a reasonable time and that Ohio applying its right to a remedy provision could protect that interest legitimately. Mr. Dyke, why isn't it a, a basic federal principle of equal treatment applicable here? You're talking about unfairness to the plaintiff whose lawyer might not have realized that tolling provisions were becoming obsolete. But what about Reynoldsville Casket's point that Bendix got off? I am entitled to be treated the same way Bendix is treated. 
What about the disparity in the treatment of identically situated defendants? Well, there would not be normally a disparity in the treatment of identically situated people because this Ohio constitutional provision would apply to any suit that was brought in Ohio. That, that issue uh, apparently wasn't raised in the Bendix case. If they raised that issue, they would have been treated the same way as Mrs. Hyde. That is, that there would have been tolling of the, of the statute of limitations uh, as a result of this surprise factor. Uh, we, we have suggested on our brief, and I think this is important, that we satisfy the Chevron oil standard, which is before you go, I, I ask, why should we ever rule on the unconstitutionality of a statute of limitations then? I mean, it, it's really a, a, a phony case. Well, I, Ohio just, can go ahead and pass all the unconstitutional statutes of limitations it wants because there, there's no case in which I can see anybody has standing because, you know, if you strike it down, the Ohio Supreme Court's going to say, well, yes, it was an unconstitutional one, but in light of the fact that you relied on it, uh, uh, we'll, we'll allow you to to have that, that additional time. How do you ever get a lawsuit? But that happens all the time, Justice Scalia. And that's the, that is the, the law about uh, adequate and independent state ground in this, uh, in this court, which is very similar. A lot of people oh, bring that, cases with federal issues in them. The federal issue may not ultimately dis, be no, dispositive. Like, that goes to the, doesn't the adequate and independent state ground go to the choice of law? In other words, we would say, you can't raise this issue. You cannot, in effect, proffer the claim for relief because there's some kind Kind of a state bar. We've passed that point. You've, you've, you've raised your claim. Your claim is good. There is no question that Bendix applies. And it seems to me the question in this case is whether in an instance in which there is no choice of remedy in the sense that there may be remedy A, B, or C, as in tax cases, for example, in a case in which, rather, there is only one choice, and that is, if you apply the statute, if you apply the, the constitutional rule, you can't apply this statute. Uh, the alternative being that if you apply the statute, you are, in fact, not applying the constitutional rule. Is there really any choice of remedy? And I would suppose that this case was distinguishable from the paradigm of the tax cases in which there are various alternatives. There's just an either-or question here. And if you answer the remedial question differently from the choice of law question, you come back to what I suggested a moment ago was just kind of a shell game. Now you see it, now you don't. Well, but, Justice Souter, that happens frequently. It happens in, in federal habeas. It happens in qualified immunity. It happens oh, but federal habeas, I think, is a slippery analogy because in federal habeas, we've already, the, the very premise of federal habeas <coughs> is that there has already been one completed process of direct appeals in which these kinds of issues can be raised. Federal habeas is a supplementary process. There's nothing supplementary about this. The only way the defendants in this case can raise the constitutionality of the savings clause is the way they've raised it. This is their only shot. But, Justice Souter, in, in at least two cases, Chevron Oil and St. Francis, this Court has held it appropriate to toll uh, uh, statutes of limitations under federal law where there has been surprise. It is a traditional thing to have tolling of statutes of limitations where people are surprised. Well, I, I, I would like to say there's a distinction because of the constitutional rule that we're dealing here with here, although I recognize that there have been instances in which the Court has not immediate apply, immediately applied its constitutional rule. Uh, but even in those cases, I would suppose uh, that uh, the, the prospective application to the particular claimant was such uh, 
that there was not being a denial of all relief simply by deferring constitutional relief. Here, however, there's an either-or choice. This claimant gets it or this claimant gets nothing. Well, I think that was true in, in Chevron and St. Francis also. It, it happens that — Which were not constitutional they, cases. They were not constitutional cases, but they arose under federal law. And I would have supposed, Justice Souter, that the states had greater authority than the federal courts to define the appropriate scope of their statutes of limitation. Well, they, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Well, I was going to refer to the Chase case, which recognizes that states can go so far as to revive an entirely expired statute of limitations. There are many state doctrines which preclude the litigation of federal claims. Uh, Race judicata is one of them. If this Court decides a case, uh, the the states are not obligated to go back and reopen closed cases. But don't you think the states, the the options open to the states, are affected uh, by Beam and Harper? Because it seems to me that if the Ohio Court can do what you want it to do, then all of the professions in Beam and Harper uh, are very hollow uh, because, in fact, the statute can apply, the the ruling can apply in the first case. The ruling can, therefore, necessarily be retroactive because there's no selective prospectivity. But it doesn't make any difference uh, because the the remedial hand can simply take away what the choice of law hand hath given. Justice Souter, I I don't believe that's true. First of all, the state... Uh, at a minimum, has to be applying an established and, and legitimate uh, principle of law to deny the federal right. Uh, that's required by the Supremacy Clause. And here, I think there's no question, there's not even an argument that Ohio was in any way discriminating against the federal right. And I think it is clear from its No, past, it's just saying we, we won't honor it. We won't honor it, but it's not doing anything that's per- peculiar to the federal light, right. It's treating state claims and federal claims the same. And it's saying when there's surprise, we're going to protect people. That, we suggest, is a legitimate state interest. Or, or, but ordinarily, that sort of a legitimate state interest doesn't triumph over, uh, you know, a flat declaration that the thing is unconstitutional from this court on federal grounds. But frequently, Mr. Chief Justice, it does. In, in the example of harmless error, which was discussed recently in this court's decision in O'Neill or forum nonconvenience, there's a whole range of state remedial doctrines which may trump, if, if you wish to put it that way, may trump the federal right and may deny enforcement of the federal right. It well, happens but, all the time. But the, the harmless error doctrine is itself a federal doctrine from, from Chapman against California that says a state may affirm a conviction if it's convinced that the constitutional error beyond a reasonable doubt did not cause any harm to the defendant. But the harmless error doctrine in a state court, in a state case, originates as a matter of state law, and the question is, is it consistent with this court's rules? The same thing. But even in that instance, Mr. Dyke, the the very premise of applying harmless error is that there is nothing that requires a remedy, i.e., a mistake was harmless. Nothing needs to be corrected. Here you are looking at a prospective application of a constitutional standard, and you are going, in effect, to deny this person the benefit of a constitutional rule. Those cases aren't, aren't, uh, aren't comparable. J- Justice Souter, I take the example of race judicata, for example. This, this Court says in Bendix that this uh, tolling statute is unconstitutional. The state says we have a rule of race judicata. We're not going to open closed cases. Well, the, those closed cases remain closed. The people are but denied those the were vindication cases, of the those were cases at least, as, as, as I was saying about habeas, in which somebody uh, uh, had a shot at raising the issue. 
uh, and, and, you know, we can argue in given instances whether the person was at fault or negligent or whatnot for not raising the issue and prevailing. But in any event, there's no such arguable choice here. This is the only time, the only uh, case in which this, this issue can be raised. Justice Souter, I don't agree with that. I think that the, this issue could have been raised, at least in theory, by Reynoldsville Casket, for example, bringing a declaratory judgment after the accident to have this provision of the uh, Ohio statutes declared unconstitutional. Uh, and uh, they you, — You want them to go in and invite the lawsuit in order to get the benefit of a constitutional remedy? I, 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 I'm merely suggesting that there is a remedy here that is not a situation in which there is no remedy available. The traditional remedy, of course, is to raise it as a defense. But for what it's worth, that still doesn't put them on, on par with the individual who has litigated, for example, a direct appeal in habeas, uh, or has already had an, an, an opportunity for litigation in the normal, we assume, the normal adversarial context uh, under the race judicata rules. Uh, you're saying, well, in order, to, in order to avoid unconstitutionality, they should have taken the affirmative step of beginning their own litigation. Well, Maybe I mean, they should have, but I mean the, the I'm not situation's just, not comparable. I'm not saying they should have. I'm saying that that is an option that was available to them. There is but a you're, potential you're remedy. They, they should have uh, as a basis for justifying Ohio's result. Well, I think that, that Ohio is entitled to make the choice, as it does routinely and across the board. It is not discriminating against the federal right. It is uh, uh, simply deciding a remedial issue. But discriminating or not, it is in effect ruling that the Ohio Constitution can make the Bendix decision prospective only in Ohio. That's the effect of it, is it not? That, that is the effect uh, of it, but not as a choice of law matter. Is it is a, is a, is a remedial matter of saying that where people are surprised. Whatever label you put on it, the result is a prospective application of a decision that this Court declared to be fully Retroactive. Well, I, I do think the, the label uh, reflects real substance underlying the Ohio rule of decision. There is a huge difference both as a practical matter and in theory between saying as a choice of law matter we refuse to uh, apply Bendix uh, uh, retroactively and saying we apply Bendix retroactively, we recognize that we are bound that, by it. Mr. Dyke, is what Ohio said. I asked a question of Mr. Warren. It isn't what Ohio, under Ohio's own law. What counts is the syllabus. And under the syllabus, Section 16 of the Article 1 of Ohio Constitution apply under that provision. Recent U.S. Supreme Court decision may not be retroactively applied to bar claims in state courts which accrued prior to the announcement of the decision. That is the holding of the Ohio Supreme Court. Yes, and Justice Ginsburg, in the syllabus, they rely on Article I, Section 16 of the Constitution, they are, which is a right to a remedy provision. They are relying on their right to a remedy provision, mistakenly saying that that uh, trumps uh, 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 this Court's uh, uh, rules about retroactivity. But I think it is nonetheless clear what they are saying, even though uh, they should have said it differently, that there is a right to a remedy here when you are surprised, uh, uh, as this Court has frequently held in past cases involving state law, all sorts of law, where you are surprised you get the benefit of tolling of the statute of limitations. And we don't think that's a, an, an exceptional thing, and it, it has been done at least twice by this Court in, in St. Francis and Chevron, and 
in uh, Glaus, for example. Uh, well, however you recast the decision, correct me if I'm wrong, I thought it was the statute of law of Ohio that the holding of the case, the case law comes out of the syllabus and not the opinion. The, the opinion may be used to interpret clarify. The, clarify and interpret the syllabus, and we agree that to the extent that they said that the Ohio Constitution trumps uh, some federal principle, they were wrong. What they should have said was, and, and this is what we urged on them, uh, we did not urge the contrary, what we urged on them was that the Ohio Constitution, the right to a remedy provision, was consistent with federal law and that they could, at one and the same time, recognize that they were bound by the Bendix decision but uh, take account of the surprise factor by applying this, this right to a remedy, this uh, provision of the Ohio Constitution. I suppose there's no reason why such a provision, if it's, uh, if, if it's operative uh, against, uh, against federal decisions, couldn't be applied to substantive matters as well. That is, if, uh, if there is a surprise ruling by, uh, by, by this Court that, uh, that a particular substantive provision of Ohio law is unconstitutional, the, the Ohio Court could say, well, you know, that's a surprise and... Uh, uh, we're going to preserve uh, expectations by not applying that uh, retroactively. I would have a serious question about that. Why? Why, why is that different? Well, first of all, if a decision of this court uh, uh, says that uh, a federal right does not exist, uh, Ohio could not continue to apply. Uh, no, not a federal right doesn't exist. That the state, the state substantive provision is unconstitutional, well, under I, which a plaintiff was suing. And, and you would have to inquire under those circumstances whether the reasons that Ohio gave for preserving uh, 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 the, the state substantive provision were legitimate or illegitimate. Probably in most cases they wouldn't be legitimate. I don't think but that — But if they were legitimate, if they were genuinely protecting expectations, I guess you'd have to say it's okay. Well, I don't think we're arguing, Justice Scalia, that the state in all circumstances can preserve expectations. What we are saying is uh, we ask you to look specifically at this case. It involves a statute of limitations. It is traditional both in Ohio and in the federal system to toll statutes of limitations where there is surprise. And we are saying that in those limited circumstances, it is legitimate for the Ohio Supreme Court to say, if there is surprise, we are going to toll the statute of limitations. We do it in other situations. We are going to do it in this situation. That is a legitimate state, in, state interest. It is an established state interest. It is a non-discriminatory state interest. Mr. Dyke, can I ask you a, a more basic question? I fully understand you're <clears throat> drawing an important distinction between the choice of law rule and the, and the remedy rule. And you say here all you're doing is talking about remedy. But is it not at least arguable that in this case we've held as a matter of constitutional law that it's a burden on interstate commerce to compel this out-of-state company to defend the lawsuit that's filed after the normal statute of limitations is run, in which event we're not really talking about remedy, but we're talking about whether or not we will allow another constitutional violation to take place. Well, I think the question is whether the Ohio Supreme Court's decision represents an independent constitutional violation. And it is not, we suggest, a violation of the Commerce Clause. It is, not, it is a non-discriminatory rule. The, the petitioner in this case does not urge that uh, the Ohio Supreme Court has violated the Commerce Clause. They are urging — No, that but they're arguing, as they did in Bendix, that requiring us to defend, unlike — a local, uh, at a time when a local company would not have to defend, is itself a violation of the, of the Commerce Clause. But the, 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 the rule of Bendix rested uh, uh, on 
the notion of discrimination on the on the. No, notion. Justice Scalia's position rested on discrimination. Mm-hmm. The majority rested on balancing rocks against lines or something like that, as I remember. But but be, it, what it held was. Uh, 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 applying Commerce Clause principles, whether you characterize those as, as non-discrimination principles, certainly the interest in the protection of interstate commerce was one side of the balance. And what we're suggesting here is that Ohio is not doing what it did in the uh, foreign corporation tolling provision. It is not saying that we are going to uh, create a situation where foreign corporations do not get the benefits of the statute of limitations. That is not the holding at all. What they are saying is that anybody who is surprised will. But it uh, is for Reynoldsville. Reynoldsville is being treated by the uh, by the Ohio courts uh, just the way Bendix was. But, Mr. Chief Justice, I would not have understood that a foreign corporation can claim immunity from all uh, state rules of law simply because it is an out-of-state corporation. It, 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 if it faces a non-discriminatory rule, and we, and we suggest that the rule of surprise here is a non-discriminatory rule, it, it cannot claim a Commerce Clause violation any more than, than uh, any Just corporation. Just another way of saying it's giving a different reason for the same unconstitutional violation? Uh, Justice Stevens, I don't think so. I think what it is doing is it is applying an entirely different uh, uh, rule of state law, uh, resting on other considerations which have nothing to do with whether they are a foreign corporation or a domestic corporation, that anyone can take advantage of the Ohio tolling rule. That which rule is shaped around the former Ohio tolling rule. It is, it is entirely shaped around it. You no. certainly would not allow them to bring the suit later than that rule would have allowed. Justice Scalia, it is not you shaped. measure it by that rule. Justice Scalia, it is not shaped by the, by the tolling rule uh, that was held invalid in Bendix. It, if, if you look at the decisions that the Ohio Supreme Court cited in this case, the Hardy decision, the Eli Lilly decision, going back to 1882. And you misunderstand mm. me. I'm not saying that, 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 that they're applying the same statute. They are applying a rule of surprise. But what are you enabled to do by reason of the surprise? What you're enabled to do by reason of the surprise is to sue for as long as that old unconstitutional statute would have allowed you to sue. Not any longer than that. Well, what it allows you to do is to sue for a reasonable time after the, the earlier statute was invalidated. We agree but with that's that. that's an ongoing constitutional violation. You're, what Ohio has done is to say that we cannot cease an ongoing constitutional violation. And, and that, that seem, seems to me, A, questionable, and B, distinguishable from Chevron. To, Justice Kennedy, I do not think it is distinguishable on the facts from Chevron, and I do think that applying the Chevron rule here suggests that we should prevail. But in our view, the Chevron rule is too restrictive, that this ought to be judged by uh, other uh, uh, principles, such as uh, those articulated in Hallett against Rose, and that the state uh, uh, limitation uh, should be sustained unless it is discriminatory, not established, not reasonable. We think this one is reasonable. Thank you, Mr. Dyke. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Rudy, you have seven minutes remaining. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, I will waive the balance of my rebuttal argument. Very well. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock.